Let's talk about Incredibad. Yeah. yeah. Welcome yeah. to Put Down Your Chainsaw, the podcast where we discuss important comedy albums and singles and say things that may or may not be true about them. Some facts are kind of true, but most of them are for entertainment, entertainment purposes, purposes only. only. If you are curious about the actual facts of the subjects we cover, please independently verify them and do not rely upon us as a source of factual, factual authority. authority. I'm Jacob Godby. I'm Justin Ashbean. Today we're talking about The Lonely Island's first album, Incredibad. It is anything but. It is a genre parody. It is a pastiche. It came out in 2009, and without hyperbole, it is one of the most influential pieces of comedy for the current generation of comedians. With hyperbole, it is the most important treatise on identity, identity politics, politics. politics set to music. Well, I'm excited, but we got to start with some facts real quick. Incredibad was a big album. It got nominated for a Grammy. It had a couple big singles. Dick in a Box reached number five on the modern cock charts, and Jizz in My Pants reached number two on the Hot Come 100. Billboard had to create new charts. This album was influential on the course of new media, in particular the comedy genre, which was transitioning into to a transmedia enterprise of viral videos, a musical parody videos, sketch-based short on the internet, and this album was part and parcel. This was a big deal. Lazy Sunday came out in 05, that digital short aired on SNL, and this album came out in 09. This album chronicles a lot of the most famous digital shorts from that era, along with some songs that were created just for the purpose of being on the album. My generation of friends and comedians, this was a big fucking deal. I can still still see the influence that The Lonely Island has had even when I'm not doing comedy, just any sort of art that I've been doing, they're in my DNA. They reached me early on in high school and I was like a sponge, just soaked it all up. Just filter-fed three dudes making rap music. For my generation, it was important because it had a lot of famous people on it mm -hmm. and the references they made were understandable to people like me who were listening to this album for the first time. With the first portable phones that I purchased, I think, in 2000 and... Are they called car phones? What do we call them now? If it's in your car, it's a car phone. It's a car phone. So I purchased my first one about 2016, and this album came free with the phone. And I thought, oh, I've heard of Carlos Santana. I remember him. I want to talk about that song soon, but... It is a lead track. It is track number two. What's the first track? Who oh, said, said we're whack. whack. I didn't put a square around that in my notes. Excuse me, let me... Oh, man. This album sort of had a Simpsons effect on me, and by that I mean it made a lot of references that I didn't understand. Pop culture that I didn't know about. What didn't you understand? Most of these references. Okay. So uh, this is a history lesson for you. It was a lot of backtracking. I did not understand I'm on a boat when I first saw it. I thought it was just dumb, right? It's, it's an important sign of wealth. It's a song about a boat with a lot of swear words in it. And I didn't like it, but I, I've, uh, I have come around to it, of course. References, they're from the Oakland, Sacramento area. Mm -hmm. So a lot of music from the Bay Area that kid from Montana just don't understand. Okay, so first track. Who Dude. said we're whack? Now, did these songs exist before the sketches were made for Saturday Night Live? Was this a full album and then they just made the videos as no. digital shorts? The videos came first, then they started writing songs for the purpose of releasing an album. And they've talked about it in interviews where they're like, we got SNL money, we got Universal Records money, let's do something with it. They were able to get a lot of the guests on this album. And that's what they did with it. Some huge names. Carlos Santana. Santana plays himself on Santana DVX, track number two, but we're talking about track number one. Who said we're whack? E-40 released a response track to Who Said We're Whack called I Said You're Whack, in which he claimed to be the person that called the Lonely Island whack. 
as you listen to the song, it goes on a journey, and he apologizes at the end, saying that his label forced him to record the song in an effort to drum up popularity for E-40's music again. You can look for that. I said you're whack. He reveals it at the end as a promotional beef. Uh, the track is, I don't know, it's simmering. It's not quite fire. Who said we're whack is a statement. Prior to this, most of the digital shorts didn't have aggressive production and tone. They were silly, they were goofy. I guess I'm on a boat is a little more aggressive, if you will, but who said we're whack front track on this album? It's big. You would expect an opening track to sort of kick down the door and really make its gigantic statement. And this one does. It's very much an opening track, too. It's, what, like a minute, 16 seconds long. And it is the most banging of the sketches. Since they did the singles first for the videos to tie them together, the sketches are the connective tissue from song to song onto this larger theme, identity, identity politics. politics. Who said we're whack? The statement, who has made this valuation? Who has criticized us for the stance that we're taking on all of these singles that we've done and we will present them as evidence? Woe to whoever defies them in this effort. It's much more of a stronger statement than it is a stronger track. They judged it in that way and put it up front as the connective tissue, but also the taunt. There's a recurring motif through a lot of Lonely Island work. It isn't what they're saying, it's how they're saying the same thing over and over again, but right. differing it just enough that it's funny. It does increase laterally. It, it, it's who said we're whack, but they just find different ways to say it throughout the whole song until at the very end you get the vindication. All the ladies in your house, put your hands up. All the fellas in the house, put your hands up. Now whoever said we're whack, put your hand up. Now everyone else, put your hands down. That's a great technique. I've used it in real life. Singling people out. Yeah, you know, it's it's akin to being in an airport and just yelling, Martha, and seeing who turns around. Because you know if they're named Martha that they fit a certain type. I had a teacher in high school who did this. Everyone who took the test, put your hands up. Uh -huh. If you didn't cheat on the test, put your hands down. Boom, there's the cheater. Is that why you got kicked out of high school? Yeah. Well, that makes sense that you would, you would find the solace in Incredible Bad from relating to it. Crying in my room while laying on my bed because I too fell for this technique. The Lonely Island is what they won up to me. They, mm -hmm. they were smarter than me, and I wish I had discovered this song before. They're placing an identity upon you that you did not necessarily will yourself into being through this trickery. It's unfair what they're doing to the audience. A lot of the time when you're asking people to put their hands in the air, they're not really concerned with the criteria for why they're putting their hands in the air. They mm -hmm. just want to be part of the performance and they want to associate with the artist. You can't really believe your eyes or things right. may happen that you're just really not aware of, so you have to dig deeper. Stay on your toes, you know, yeah. when you're listening to Lonely Island. If you're going to fall for this little trick... Then we don't want you. You're not ready for the truth that we're going to reveal in the rest of the record. Yeah. It's a culling, a weeding out. <laughs> Track two, Santana DVX. It's a testament to the group that they didn't open this album with two of their biggest hits, you know, to mm -hmm. lure people in. They opened this album with that opening track and then one of the weirdest songs they've done to date mm -hmm. about Santana Champagne. I remember laying on my bed, like in high school, and thinking, like, they get such cool guests on their digital shorts. They got Justin Timberlake, they got T Pain. And I was like, who is out of their reach? And the first person that came to mind was Santana. There's no way the Lonely Island gets Santana for one of their songs, right? But then they did. They got Santana. I mean, how the hell did Rob Thomas get Santana for his song? If Rob Thomas could do it, the Lonely Island could do it. I did not love this song at first, but I have really come around on it. What brought you around? Understanding what they were talking about? Pretty did, much, Did yeah. you understand what they were talking about when it first no, happened? No, I didn't understand that Santana moved from being a musician into putting his hands into other avenues, mm. business, such right. as... Wine. He also made a line of guitar amps where the speaker cones were made of hemp. 
That's like a Hendrix thing. If he burns his guitar and then he burns his hemp cones on his guitar amp. I, I don't think it was potent. I think it was the industrial grade, oh, which okay. has been seeded in. Oh, I'm going to buy some hemp. And Rather burn it than... up and get higher than Carlos Santana yeah. at Woodstock. I uh, had a friend. He bought some weed paint and they painted a barn. And they lit the barn on fire and stood in the middle of the barn. At his funeral, we called it a barn burner. That, that's the cause of death on his certificate. He achieved a new level of high. I bet for them to put this at the front of the record, the one that has the least to do with the overall, it's reintroducing the historical core of the record. It's semi-autobiographical because they're from the Bay Area and Santana represents Bay Area pop culture, the second half of the 20th century's psychedelic movement, Silicon Valley, mind-expanding narcotics, Eastern religions, Latino cultural influences. He's like the spiritual touch tone to connect the contemporary incarnation of Santana with E-40 as a guest. It holds the same kind of relevance and He replaced message. Santana with a wig. And has been since the 1980s. Santana is living in Fiji. He just needs someone else to do stuff for him, and E-40 mm -hmm. was around. That's E-40 playing on the Rob Thomas track. It's pretty incredible that he learned to emulate Santana's style so well. It's not even that the guitar playing, like, it's great, but it's mm -hmm. not unheard of it's good enough you know you hear old santana and he's just blazing through these solos and the rob thomas track he's just kind of we can talk about that too because when i was a kid or that rob thomas track had come on the radio i knew enough to know that santana was a big deal mm -hmm. when i heard him play i'm like why we're sort of dancing around this song is the missing key in understanding the mystery of what actually happened to carlos santana without explicitly saying it e40 it's presented as a guest and haha -ha, he's playing Santana on the track, but using his E-40 persona voice pretends to be Carlos Santana, so it's sort of bridging the two, but he actually is the Carlos Santana surrogate for Carlos Santana, who's actually in Fiji and is not performing anymore. It's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek. With a hint of conspiracy to it. Yeah, so it's like hidden in plain sight. But it's also a funny joke. There's levels to it. Let's talk about some of the lyrics. I picked out a few of my favorite passages. As a kid, I used to lay awake and think, when was Santana going to make a drink? I love just the absurdity there. No kid is laying awake and thinking, man, when is Santana going to make an alcoholic beverage? Without Carlos in my life, I was living a lie. He makes his guitar weep, but his champagne cry. Rob Thomas reference. And the salsa fusion, he's Lady Shoe producing, plus he teamed with Rob Thomas for a music revolution. Santana's rapping in the song. He's got a line, I'm probably your daddy. I probably nutted in your mammy. That line resonated especially close with me because Santana did, in fact, nut in my mammy. You're not... Carlos Santana's kid. I'm not. No, it was. Oh, okay. It's unrelated. I was already alive. So you have a half brother. No, no, no. I didn't. Nothing happened. Or say half sibling, I should say. Yeah. Oh, he nutted in her, but. But it didn't. Yeah, nothing. Gotcha. Nothing came to fruition. Was Was your mom on birth control? Or? I don't really know the specifics. It just wasn't. Just timing. I'm not sure. I think at that point he was not really that potent. Oh, I see. You know. Gotcha. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't followed up with him. That's my theory. And here's a fact. Uh, oh, so he was the one who told you that? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. He, we still invite him to dinner and stuff like that. It's a big deal, you know? On the seventh day, it was said God rests, but on the eighth day, he made the DVX, which is true. The eighth day of creation, God littered the world with thousands of bottles for humans to find. That's in the Carlos Gospels. And that's why it's not available anymore is because humans drank it all. It is now an extinct champagne. It cannot mm -hmm. be recreated by anyone but God or 
the Son of God. So the Catholic Church will have you believe the Council of Nicaea was explicitly to suppress the Carlos Gospels regarding DVX. This is uh, speculative scholarship, so we don't know necessarily if the DVX is gone or if they've made it inaccessible. Mm -hmm. But either way, they're talking about a fictional champagne. What is now a fictional champagne? They are talking about baby boomers transitioning from psychedelic individuation to capitalism. The DVX is avatar for LSD. D. Santana is one of the soldiers in that generation fighting itself, fighting its inner core back to its roots. This track features a Lonely Island staple, which is just very casual swearing and like lots of it. As a kid, wasn't sure if I was allowed to listen to stuff like this. Definitely had to hide it a little bit. But it has one of my favorite line deliveries on the entire album when Santana comes in and he goes, Oh shit, what is all the hubbub about? Just the way he rides those bees, man. <laughs> Production from J-Zone, the sampled psychedelic, funky, wah, guitar, and keyboard situation. It's transcendent of genre. And J-Zone also produced the next track. The song is called Jizz In My Pants. It's track three. This is one of my favorite Lonely Island songs. This one really, really resonated with me in high school. <laughs> ah, for the premature ejaculation. Yeah. Fun fact, it is condemned for its use of the white note akin to the brown note, the yes. note so low that it makes people poop their pants, but the white note is a note so high that it makes men spontaneously ejaculate, which is wild that this reached number two on the Hot Come 100. You got people driving to work and just creaming their jeans. While this song was on the charts, people were needing to bring a second pair, maybe even a third pair of pants to work, to school, etc. Uh, I know my friends and I used to just go to the bathroom during lunch and listen to this song and then change our pants and go back to class because we enjoyed the song so much. It was worth it. Clearly. In the Live from New York uh, oral history book, they talk about that. Especially Andy, he says something like, you could hear the collective explosion in the room the first time the white note plays in the song. It plays twice. You could be in 30 Rock and you would hear the collective like... That was a nationwide phenomenon when it aired. Which That's the sound of 10, 12 million people all jizzing at the same time. And it was part of what led to the financial crisis. Local municipalities had been so overburdened by the calls of people who weren't ready for an orgasmic experience. So a lot of people suffered heart attacks and there was a lot of strokes. And that put public services out so much that these municipalities who had their money wrapped up in hedge fund investments just basically went bankrupt. And it caused a huge shift in the fashion industry because you can't make pants that fast. You cannot replace that many semenized jeans mm -hmm. that quickly. Right after that, the fashion industry had brought back sort of the saggy crotch style, you know, like the MC Hammer pants. That was a direct result. Get out ahead of this possibly occurring again and to allow room for a reservoir. People suffered dehydration spells from this song. It really changed a lot of industry. I don't even think the Lonely Island know quite the effect that this song had yeah. on the, not just the American public, but the global public. That's a product of shame. You had this crisis going on throughout the United States, you know, in markets that got to experience it outside of the United States. But because the initial cause of these emergencies was ejaculation in your pants, we didn't really talk about it. So it was a silent crisis. From Genius.com, the description for the song says, the second single from the Lonely Island's debut album, Incredibad, this song covers a topic that affects millions of men, young and old, mm -hmm. part mental and part physical. Premature ejaculation can have a debilitating effect on one's sex life, or even worse, as Lonely Island illustrates with this song, on just about every little thing you do. And I like to think 
this song was a little bit of Lonely Island sharing their problems with the world. It's not emo, it's not a guy with guitar crying into his lyrics, you know, this is the Lonely Island making a song so that the American and global public can understand their daily struggle. Yeah, it was kind of foolish of them to really instigate it if that was their goals. I think and I hope after the success of this album that they were able to get the help they need. This song awakened my sexuality in more ways than one. The cold European presentation of it, was that more appealing or less appealing to you? Certainly more sensual. Getting the whispers, you know, need to get away, need to make a dash. The low, it, it tantalizes your ears. It's sort of a foreplay to the white note. As the song increases, the beats heighten. Yorma Takoni says that he just ate a grape and he jizzed his pants. And that same thing happened to me as I was listening to that part of the song and I was eating a grape. This is the first time you heard the song, too? It wasn't the first time, no. I knew what was coming, so I was prepared. I had begun stuffing my crotch with Kleenexes. This is an experiment to see if it worked. Yes, it was me deliberately sitting there with a grape. And it was confirmed. And it was confirmed. I confirmed. So you are an empiricist. Good work. I don't know if music can be four-dimensional, but this song certainly is. It has had a profound effect upon the world and myself. EDM being, from that point on, an unstoppable force in pop music. This had registered so deeply at that moment. Electro-pop wasn't quite EDM-ish. It wasn't the trippy electronic music style, but it at least connected sex and electronics uh, for an audience that hadn't previously known that. That's more of a Euro-consciousness that was more of a subculture in the United States. There was also a guest producer, Arthur Baker, who is Jay's own secret weapon on that track. He programmed a lot of the synths. They wanted that Europop sound. Europop sex and electronics. Moving on to I'm on a Boat. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, shit. Is this the only track with auto-tune? It's about to go down. It's the only track with prominent auto-tune. I'm sure that they touch up their vocals on some of the others. But this has T-Pain, a cultural force in the late aughts. Mm T-Pain was a big deal. Huge deal that the Lonely Island got him on this track. Music video for this song is crazy, too. You know, they got on a yacht. They got some helicopter shots. Like, this was the Lonely Island taking it to the next level. The level that they knew they could be at, but maybe the rest... Producing a video in Miami is what it is. Yeah, the rest Mm -hmm. of the world didn't know they could get to that level. That level of expense on a music video. It's also tribute to Flip Wilson with all those subtle references to flipping. I'm all about and shit. We're drinking Santana Champ because it's so crisp. Yeah, there's a callback to Santana Champ, but it's weird. This video and this song came out before the album. So there's a reference to Santana Champagne as this video airs on Saturday Night Live, but nobody has heard Santana DVX yet. It's a good little thing for the Lonely Island mythology, but I cannot imagine like hearing that line and being like, what? They had had the whole album worked out ahead of time. This song was nominated for Best Rap Slash Sung Collaboration at the 52nd Grammy Awards, which is a big deal as well. The first sung collaboration Grammy was given to Oscar the Grouch and the other guy who was on the I Love Trash song. Pretty similar to... The Lonely Island and T-Pain. You know, you mm-hmm. got T-Pain, who's the Oscar the Grouch in this situation, and you've got the Lonely Island, who's the other guy. I would really love to hear I Love Trash auto-tuned. It doesn't need to be, because Oscar has such good pitch. And with that sort of unique vocal... It's an ethnic insensitivity, frankly, with Oscar the Grouch. It would be hard to translate to auto-tune. Right. T-Pain's auto-tune works because T-Pain is actually a good singer. He just chooses to auto-tune, like Cher. Exactly. There are a lot of examples in music over the last 15 years of terrible singers 
Like, like you can hear, if they sound like a squirrel, they didn't actually hit the note that's being auto-tuned, you know? But if it's deep and full and wonderful, then they were actually singing it okay. So they talk about dolphins in this song. Flipping. Riding on a dolphin, doing flips and shit. The dolphin's splashing, getting everybody all wet. I like dolphins. When I heard this song, I really latched onto those lyrics right away. It's a common thing when you're on a boat to see dolphins if you're on LSD, which right. is why they call back to the Carlos Santana champagne. Yes. I learned what a Pashmina Afghan was through this song. Oh, really? Yes. I did not get the Titanic reference the first time I heard this. The king of the world on a boat like Leo. And his arms spread wide. I had seen Titanic. I did not get it. What was the important part of Titanic to you then? That it was the highest grossing movie of all time when I watched it. So you just watched that whole movie and you just saw dollar signs? You Pretty just much, saw... because to my kid brain, quantity meant quality. And then you watch that and you're like, oh, this is a competently made film. A lot of professional mm. people worked on it, but that doesn't make it good. They built a boat and sunk it. That's pretty exactly. competent. The movie, not the boat. I assume they were able to protect their camera gear from all the water. Which I is assume as well. Competent. I also did not get the Kevin Garnett reference. That was a deep cut. It is deep. And mm. for this big of a song, like I had to look it up. At the time, you, you watch the video, you listen to the live SNL audience, and you're like, oh, they know what it is. That's for the old people. T-Pain fucked a mermaid in this song. So mm -hmm. good for him. I don't know mm -hmm. how that works. I don't know if she opens her cloaca. Fucking the mermaid is the siren, and a lot of this song really has to do with the male identity adrift at sea. And so fuck land, fuck mermaids. Land and the mermaid is the stability of family, is the stability of getting in touch with one's feminine side. Fuck trees. But at being adrift and not really understanding what male identity is, mm -hmm. you get the flip reference. You're flipping between what you think is what you're supposed to be and what you think it is. And also Flip Wilson was one of the first black comedians who carried on the trend of emasculation by having to dress in drag, obscuring his identity. There's references to empty and hollow but exciting thrills. The boat engine make noise. I'm on the deck with my boys. Materialistic examples of the exactly. male identity. Also, autotune, the male singer, making reference to sirening being a feminine gesture, then the autotune obscures that in a material shell, which leads right into Saxman. The Lonely Island were told that they could get Jack Black on the record. They wanted to put him in a comfortable position. They asked Jack, what instrument are you most afraid of? And he said, saxophones. And then they thought, why would we not use a saxophone on our album just because our guest is afraid of them? Why don't we expose him to saxophones in a controlled and safe environment in order for him to get past this fear? Which is why Jack Black ends up confronting Saxman. It's him confronting his fears of saxophones, really putting it on display, mm -hmm. and he gets to do a little bit of scatting, too. With saxophones are afraid of scatting. It's competition for the most absurd thing that jazz could possibly do. Exactly. Scatting being a close second to using an instrument that sounds like a dying pig as a highlighted solo instrument. If a wild saxophone creeps up on you, you mm -hmm. scat. You zippity beep boop bop doop. Zoodly dwee dot. Mm -hmm. That saxophone will turn around. It will go the fuck home. Jack Black being taken out of his comfort zone. For this. Silence. Jack There's Black's comfort zone. There's nothing more scary than lack of sound yeah. for Jack Black. Also, Jack Black being more of a classic rock and roll kind of guy was told that it would be basically a parody of Another One Bites the Dust. 
classic Queen track, epic stadium rock. And so he was comfortable with that. The song starts out with Another One Bites the Dust and then immediately transforms into a boogie funk track. Immediately. Like a freak funk West Coast thing. You just do your Jack Black thing. Oh, no, you're on the West Coast with the Lonely Island and we're going to make you act like cameo, like that. And that's why his cameo impersonation isn't as on point. Well, he was a sax man exactly. from the so state of Tennessee. He's just sort of dipping into it. We get that sense of his discomfort and being put off, but it makes his struggle that much more real for him. Yeah, not to mention the live saxophone on this song, played by Lenny Pickett of the SNL band. He's the band leader, he's the saxophone player that you see. He's the guy who does all the really high notes at yes. the end. This was also an incredible test for him of restraint, silence. Performers are scared of that stuff. I want to point out one of my favorite lines in this song. It's a misdirection, it's a great one. First set in with the band at the ripe old age of three. And you're like, whoa. Ripe old. Three is not ripe old. It might really be ripe young. if you're still wearing diapers, yeah. but yeah. Very young to be in a band, and mm -hmm. then they subvert it even more by having Jack Black go, three weeks old. And they're like, oh, so now we got a little baby playing the saxophone. I think it's considered like a hero's legend. It's like his dark place. It's the trials part of the hero's journey. Saxman is the unfamiliar world Jack Black is thrown into. He's like a child reborn, not knowing what the hell is going on and trying to find his way around it. He incorporates the emotion of not really understanding why the sax isn't playing with his cameo impersonation. When he does the, well, that's a really brilliant move on Jack Black's part. Very heroic. If you would like to know anything more about Sex Man, you can pick up the novelization of the song at any local Walgreens. Uh, I wanted to just point out one more line. It's in the bridge. Uh, Shibbity bop bop Buddha bop ba. I just like it. It just sounds good. That's all. And it's terrifying to saxophones. Yeah, it doesn't do any good to get that guy playing. This is essentially an allegory on impotence. And that brings us to Lazy Sunday. The song that started it all came out in 2005. It was a very early SNL digital short. The first mm -hmm. one was actually called Lettuce. It features Andy and Will Forte. Chris Parnell and Andy Samberg wrapped their way through a lazy Sunday. And I want to point out that I just got one of the jokes as I was looking through the lyrics. Past that chronic... What? Coals of Narnia. Well, I was too young. I didn't know what chronic was. I didn't understand the Dre reference. You know, what I didn't... was weed called when you were first exposed to it? Pot. Good God. Yeah. You really did grow up in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> I was told that it was bad pot. Like, not even good stuff. Like, skunky. The pot that you were about to be witness to. Well, yeah, to. I was told it was bad, but also that the quality of it was poor. Like, pot is bad, and this pot is particularly bad. Right, right. It will ruin your life and turn you into a drug-crazed demon, and it kind of tastes like shit and doesn't get you that high. Right. I got it now. The Chronic. There is a prophecy in this song about internet mapping. Well, let's hit up Yahoo Maps to find the dopest route. I prefer MapQuest. That's a good one, too. Google Maps is the best. True that. Double true. They knew that Google Maps was always going to be on top. Would dominate. It's currently dominating, you know, even mm. with Waze, like, trying. Well, they own Waze. Tons and tons of, like, early aughts, late 90s references. Matthew Perry, Bruce Willis, McAdams and Goslin, Ghost, like, Schwazy, like. Well, the production is particularly early 90s. The horror rap genre, the heavy breakbeats, like the You Can Make It If You Try breakbeat from Sly and the Family Stone, acts like the Gravediggers, Tim Dog, and you have the Ice Cube Predator record. Onyx is another group. Some people called it horror rap. It was 
also more of a mid-war soldier fantasy. Casualties of War is a good example of that. That's Eric B. M. Rakim track, the mid-battle violent imagery of either militarism or street battling. So Lazy Sunday is taking on this aesthetic while talking about passively watching the Chronicles of Narnia. I want to give a shout out to Chris Parnell. A lot of people think this was like the first comedy rap track ever to be on Saturday Night Live. When in fact, Chris Parnell got hired in the late 90s and he would appear on Weekend Update semi-frequently like doing comedy rap tracks for just whatever reason he was a little bit ahead of his time so they pulled him back in it's always been that way he's a consistently underrated one of the best like utility players that snl has ever had like you could tap him for an impression you could tap him for a character he was an excellent straight man in a sketch but he could do this sort of thing and hang with the young cool kids as well he's on my want to meet list he seems like a cool dude so what happened why did he have such a uh, unceremonious and scandalous fall from grace I don't know. I, I think it's behind-the-scenes politics. He actually got fired from the show, and he credits Will Ferrell going up to Lauren and requesting that Chris Barnell get rehired. So he wanted him to and experience this, being fired, but then bring him back to the show. I don't show. know. Lazy Sunday is post-rehiring as well. This is like late-period Chris Barnell. He had gone through the proper apology that is required, the shaming ritual. Right. And we don't really want to talk about that, but it is a thing. The thing with Lazy Sunday is its connection to the next track, Normal Guys, and it's about the gun-owning identity, which was going to become such a big issue and is currently such a big issue. Right, because you have the... Yeah. In the Lazy Sunday beat. The reference to Narnia, this fantasy of being a soldier battling a corrupt monarchy or tyranny, which is essentially what Narnia is about. And that's what the kids stumble into in the closet and combine it with gun ownership, this sort of fantasy soldier against tyranny. And so it's a very liberal bent associating the fantasy protectionism of gun ownership. Right, right. The Swayze reference of Ghost reinforces this spirit realm of a imagination that they're living in, trying to show that it's really just a lazy way, a lazy Sunday, a passive way of feeling like you're part of a battle. Owning guns for a battle that you'll never actually be in, that you only exist in in your mind. That brings us into Normal Guys, where there is this schism between this character and Lonely Island, this normal guy character. Gun ownership is going to lead to suicide by gun. You know, it's a full circle sort of liberal dogma statement. One thing about Normal Guy is the awards show at the end of the skit. It's a thin premise. It's, yeah. it's funny, but... They're exploiting the narrative. But then, in the future, it actually did win an award, and so it renders the track totally moot. You can take it out of the track listing, and it doesn't really make much of a difference at all. Life imitates art. The Lonely Island predicts things. These two tracks really predicted everything. Comedians are very good at that, usually. They have their finger enough on the pulse of pop culture, and artists in general can, like feel the vibe of the nation. Okay, Boombox. Boombox. Another liberal dream. It was originally a Julian Casablanca side project song, but the Lonely Island got a hold of it. They retooled it. Casablanca is known for his sort of lackadaisical vocal delivery, and they had to record each word separately and piece it together in order for the listener would be able to understand what Casablancas is saying. They tried a couple live tracks, they got a couple takes, you can actually find the demo version where he just sort of mumbles through it. But what ended up happening is they would have him say, you're, you know, preconceived, 
notions. What you're hearing in the song is just his speaking voice, and they've pieced it together. And they've pitched it. Yeah, it really is a miracle of production. Also a miracle is the way that Andy Samberg delivers the line, boil guts. The whole boil goose late motif. It appears three times. It's a reference to Scrooge McDuck, I'm not sure. And also the general ageism tone that they take towards the end. They're disgust with old people fucking post-retiring intercourse. And that's kind of the end game of integration. They're, they're setting their limits. We want to live in this perfect world where Boombox is going to bring everyone together, but we don't want old people to have sex. Yeah, and, that's and Boiled Goose still exists in this world? Yeah, Boiled Goose is what we're trying to emerge from, so we don't want to return to that. I uh, particularly like the verse where it just brings people from all genders and ages and ethnicities together. The golden line, I saw a Spanish guy doing the Bartman. The music video has Fred Armisen in a purple Bart costume for the Bartman, and he's actually doing the Bartman. I saw this music video about the same time I was getting into The Simpsons, and it was just like, what? Blew my mind, you know, that these uh-huh. two universes could collide. I thought the Spanish guy doing the Bart man. Mm, let's it out there. In the music video, they take a verse out of the song. I don't know if they felt it was too long or it wasn't in the budget. It's verse two. Now picture, if you will, a bunch of businessmen stuffed in the boardroom. It's the longest verse by several lines, and it's not in the music video, which is fine. Well, it was a nod to the financial backing of Saturday Night Live. Lauren Michaels being a scion ah. of New York entertainment and messaging for the banking industrial complex Wall Street. He's a mouthpiece for Wall Street, and they wanted to not appear as if they were out of touch. When, of course, that verse portrays them that way, so Lauren Michaels had it pulled for the broadcast. Yeah, it's kind of a cool little nod to the fans that listen to the album, though. Mm-hmm. You know, here's how we really feel about things. People not dancing in New York. The irony would have been lost on people. The fact that Wall Street is actually an incredibly hip place and very integrated and very open-minded. They didn't know that people would not necessarily get that. Also, nursing homes... That's just a freak show. It's nonstop yeah. orgies. Incredibly so all these progressive. places that they're saying, at least sexually too. I mean, you yeah. know, this is where people really let go. Yeah. So it's a deep, deep, deep irony. And of course, Julian Casablancas is part of that. He's part of the satanic elite. And he's playing with that idea. It would have just been too lost for the broadcast. The ageist angle of it too is the deepest irony because, I mean, who doesn't want to look at people having sex in their golden years? They're going to be the most experienced. They're mm-hmm. going to have memory of their previous experiences sex actually manifest in the act. Really, that's most people's deepest lust, is to see someone older than them at any distance making love. How about shrooms? Come on, shrooms. Oh, that, that one's all your aesthetic, man. That is, that, I, that's post-millennials and video games. I mean, I get it, but... That's the joke is the production of it. It sounds like you're on shrooms. Is this a throwaway or is there something deeper? Either they bought the beat or they accidentally made the beat and they were like, this is funny. Mm. And then they just threw it together. I think part of the joke, too, is how much time they clearly spent on it. There's some production techniques going on in there with the gang, like, la, la. Some stuff they clearly spent more than an hour on. So it's a matter of pride that they put it in there. I think so. I They're think- like, I figured out how to program a, a Game Boy. And exactly. Too much time and money on the song to not put it on the album. And it's, you know, it's 30 seconds, mm-hmm. give or take a few, and it's like inoffensive. Not my favorite, not my least. Well, it is probably my least favorite song on the album. It doesn't really count as a full song, so I kind of don't really count it anyway. I don't know. So I can take it or leave it. It's explicit. Yeah, you can't play it for kids, but it doesn't have any swear words in it. I just mean explicit in its meaning. Oh. It's really obvious what they're going for. Yeah. What is it, a minute? 
It's 36 seconds long. That was a guess. It is 34 seconds long. The joke is really worth about five seconds, frankly. I'm on shrooms, and then we get the I'm on shrooms cut. That was the radio edit. And that concludes part one. Part one of Incredible. Uh, we'll come back with part two next week, starting with Like a Boss. This has been Justin Asher. This has been Jacob Godby. We wish you good luck, tidings, and may you have your enemies driven before you and hear the lamentation of their women. Like a boss. If you like this podcast, you're a certain type of person, and I bet you know someone else who will like this podcast for the exact same reasons you do. They're going to be so happy if you tell them about it. Plus, then you can discuss the episodes together. And if you still want to discuss more, reach out to us on Twitter at Put Chainsaw, Instagram at Put Down Your, or on Facebook at Put Down Your Chainsaw Pod. Leave a review on iTunes. It helps them prioritize us, which helps others find out about us. Thank you for listening. Put Down Your Chainsaw was produced and edited by Jacob Godby and Justin Asher. Recording, mixing, and music was by Justin Asher for Mnemonic Recordings. Also, thanks to Genius.com. Special thanks to the Lonely Island and all the talented artists who helped create this comedic masterpiece that we elaborated on so unreliably. And lastly, thank you to Carlos Santana. Your secret life on the island of Fiji is safe with us. We'll see you next week. Mnemonic Recordings.